This is They Create Worlds, Episode 77, Invading Taito, Part 1. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. We talked about Sega, how it was founded, all the names, all the crazy. Then we had Namco, rising and falling. Now it is time for Taito to invade the others too and bring forth a new age of power and dominance. Or at least one would have thought that with uh, the great success that Space Invaders did, of course, have. Turns out it doesn't quite work that way, as we will discover as we go back to the very beginning of Taito and cover it roughly up to the present day. Uh, Won't really be focused on games so much, but just kind of how the company uh, evolved over time. Sounds fair enough. So Taito began... Long ago, in the before time, right after World War II. It did, though its roots go back even earlier than that. All of these early coin-op companies in Japan, we've talked about this before, tended to be founded by foreigners. This is because the entire industrial base of the country was, of course, wiped out in World War II. So in those very first years after World War II, there was a lot of opportunity for foreigners to come in and set up operations related to various activities like coin-operated games. I mean, the reason Sega gets in there is because they're providing product for military bases. Sega is coming in really to serve the U.S. market. Taito is the first company that is really focused on serving the Japanese domestic market after World War II. And it is founded not by an American, but by a Russian, Michael Kogan, or Mikhail, as it would have been originally. He uh, was born in what became the Soviet Union, and his family was kind of on the wrong side of the Russian Civil War. I mean, they they were Jewish. And there was a bit of a crackdown on Jews in in the early Soviet period, as there often was in Russia generally. We get our word pogrom, which is basically just a word for, hey, let's go beat up all the Jews from Russian, because that's unfortunately what they used to do back in the day. I mean, that was a country that was not in any way friendly towards its Jewish population. The Kogans ended up fleeing, like a lot of Jews did from Russia, ended up fleeing to Manchuria, to uh, the Harbin area, capital of Manchuria, and settling there uh, because they, they share a border. Manchuria and Russia share a border. And so there was already a lot of Russian influence kind of in northern Manchuria. So it wasn't quite as much of a culture shock to end up there, even though it was in China, which was a fragmented nation at the time, not really unified. In 1931, the Japanese invade Manchuria and set up their uh, puppet state there, Manchukuo. And it remains a Japanese puppet, Japanese dependency until the end of World War II. So that's how the Japanese element gets into this picture is because now they're in a territory that is occupied by the Japanese. Now, a funny thing happened in Japan during the 1930s. 
this was the period of time, of course, when anti-Semitism was very rife. It's not an accident that the Holocaust happened when it did. And it was a period of time when there were a lot of conspiracy theories related to Jews, as there have been, quite frankly, all the way back to when they were blamed for things like spreading the bubonic plague. So there was a belief that because you had a lot of prominent Jewish banking families like the Rothschilds and whoever else, that the Jews really had control of all world finance and entertainment media. And that there was kind of this global Jewish conspiracy to do something with that. I don't know. I mean, just like all of these conspiracy theories, it's ridiculous. But people really did believe that the Jews had taken control of the entire financial system and they were manipulating it and perhaps even causing some of these, you know, economic hardships that were starting with the Depression and everything. But in Japan, this kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory stuff was viewed in a different way. The Japanese, particularly after the Meiji Restoration, were very big on borrowing what they felt were the best aspects of various cultures out there for their own systems as the country modernized as they came out of the uh, shogunate period and moved into the uh, Meiji period. They would pick the military system of one Western country, the education system of another one the civil service apparatus of another one, and kind of take what they felt worked best amongst the various advanced systems that were out there, and then kind of slightly modify those to, of course, fit Japanese sensibilities, but then use that to modernize the nation. When it came to the Jews, there was a small group of mid-level officers in the Japanese military that really believed that these conspiracy theories about Jews and control of world finance and media were true. And they thought that, as a result, it would be beneficial for the Japanese government to utilize this resource. You know, they had the Jewish refugees in Manchuria, in an area that they controlled, and they thought it would be fantastic to harness those Jews to, I don't know, do something great for them? I mean, again, it's so ridiculous to even talk about it. I mean, I suppose I should add the disclaimer, though I don't see why it would be necessary. I mean, this is certainly not crap that I believe in. It's just this is what people were thinking in the 1930s for some bizarre reason. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird how culture sensibilities can change in little as 70 years. Just think back about how life was just 20 years ago. A lot of what was socially acceptable then is not socially acceptable now. Exactly. It's a fascinating history thought process and almost a cautionary tale of where we could go. We look back at this kind of thing and go, oh, that would never happen now. That's just silly. They were just so ignorant about whatever. That kind of thing can still happen given the right circumstances. Various groups of individuals can be vilified or praised based on how things were. Sure, absolutely. Now, on the ground in Harbin, I mean, Jews being not only being Jews, which uh, have been subjected to more than their fair share of intolerance, also being refugees, not being part of the native population. I mean, they were subjected to discrimination and hardship there. But this group of officers decided that rather than persecuting their small Jewish population, they should harness individuals within that Jewish population to better Japan. And that really ties into how stereotyping anything can go positively or negatively. 
I'm sure there's a lot of people who go, well, Asian cultures are very highly educated. So everyone who's Asian are very educated. That's a quote unquote positive stereotype. Right. Exactly. And so it's kind of interesting that in a time where most other cultures are vilifying the Jewish faith and Jewish people, you have the Japanese come in and go, okay, I see what all these other people are saying about these people. I want to harness that so that we can become more powerful and take advantage of that instead of vilifying them. Right. And this sentiment didn't last long. These mid-level military officers never really got their plan. They called it the Fugu plan. They never really got this plan off the ground. And of course, Japan started aligning more and more geopolitically with Nazi Germany for strategic reasons. And so some of that kind of anti-Semitic sentiment coming out of Nazi Germany comes back to Japan. So it's just a brief moment in time where this happens. But the upside of this is that there was a brief moment where this Jewish refugee population in Manchuria could actually advance themselves socially and economically in Japan. And Mike Kogan is at the right age to take advantage of this. So he actually, uh, in 1939, is able to enroll in Waseda University, which is one of the top universities in Japan. I think just five years earlier and five years later, that probably would have been unthinkable. But he was in the right place at the right time to be able to go to Waseda and study economics at a prestigious university. He got to learn the language. He got to know the people. He paid his way through college by translating Russian works of literature like uh, Dostoevsky into Japanese, working with a a scholar at the university to do that. So it's, it's just kind of interesting that Michael Kogan was able to do this in this time period. Of course, if you're doing the math, his schooling coincides with World War II. And in fact, the universities are shut down at a certain point and the students are required to serve the country. Now, he didn't have to go into the army or anything, but he did work in a factory during the war. In 1944, he was able to get out of Japan and make his way to Shanghai in China, though one should recall that at this period of time, Shanghai was controlled by the Japanese because the Japanese had taken a large portion of the Chinese coast under their control. When I say he was able to get out, it's not like he was leaving his nation during the war. Um, I mean, not his nation of birth or even necessarily his nation of true allegiance, but the nation he happened to be in when the war started. He's moving to Shanghai, where the Japanese also have a presence. In Shanghai, he's reunited with his father, and they found a business together called Taitung as a trading company. This is not the same Taito. We'll see he founds a couple of different companies, but they all have this name. Taitung is the same in Chinese as Taito is in Japanese. It literally just translates to Far East, essentially. So in English, it's Far East. Mm-hmm. Far East Trading Company, essentially. Since at this point they're in Shanghai, they call it Taitung rather than Taito. But it's a different company. We'll see that he has a couple of false starts here. But that name dates all the way back to 1944, even though it's not the same company. It's an import-export business. That's what all of the Taitos were. There'll be three of them in rapid succession, the third one being the one that still exists today. And they were all trading companies. Even after Taito got big in video games, 
they were still a trading company, which means that they're in the import and export business. They find companies to do business with around the world that have products that they'd like to get into Japan, and they serve as the middleman to bring them into Japan and hook them up with local distributors and vice versa. They have local Japanese companies that want to get their products to the rest of the world. They make deals with them to serve as the middleman to hook them up around the world. They don't do that anymore, obviously. But even after they hit big in video games, they were still technically a trading company. I've talked to a couple of people that were at Taito, and one of them mentioned that he's pretty sure when Mike Kogan died that he still had like a consignment for oranges, <laughs> like a big orange deal that was still part of the company right up until he died in 1984, which is well after Space Invaders took off and was successful. So it was only after the Kogan family, uh, which we'll get to, got out of the company that that trading company aspect went away entirely. That was their big thing, just buying and selling of commodities internationally. Buy oranges for a good price in California and sell them for a high price in Japan and other products. That's just one example. The main products there in China are actually... Uh, Wigs and rugs and kind of textile and, and hair-based products are their main import-export at that time. That business uh, survives the end of the war and uh, the return of those territories to Chinese sovereignty. A few years later, they moved to Tianjin, another city. I think it's the fourth largest in China, but another big city a little further north up the coast than Shanghai is. And then when the Chinese revolution is really picking up steam, when the communists are about ready to take over the country, that's when they relocate to Japan because he does have the language, he does have the knowledge of the culture, he does have the degree from a Japanese university. So at that point, with China now becoming hostile and Japan now a stalwart Western ally that is starting to uh, acquire more economic aid, he decides to relocate to Japan, and in 1950, he founds the second Taito company, which is called Taito Yoko. I don't recall off the top of my head what the word Yoko means, but it's not someone's name. Taito Yoko is the second company. Clothing is one of the big products that this company does, but again, it's a trading company, so they deal in a lot of things. This company also ends up being unsuccessful. One history of the Japanese industry that discusses this period, and I don't know where they got their sources from, you know, says that he had a lot of incompetent employees, that his employees weren't very good at going out and selling and going out and getting all the money they were owed, and the company just kind of fell apart due to incompetence. Not Kogan's incompetence, but <laughs> incompetence of the people beneath him. So in 1953... He tries one more dime here. <laughs> this is the third iteration of Taito, but it's the one that still exists today as a subsidiary of Square Enix. And that's the Taito Trading Company, established 1953. Again, they're involved in a lot of things, but this is when Taito first becomes involved in coin-operated products because he ends up doing vending machines. Peanut vending machines and perfume vending machines, primarily. The perfume vendors don't end up doing very well, but the peanut vendors are highly successful. And that's what kind of starts him on the road to incorporating CoinOp into his product line, into the stuff he's buying and selling. Though, again, it's not in any way the only thing he's doing. It's not like your service games complex where everything was set up specifically around the concept of coin operated product. It's just one of many. They even distill vodka for a while. 
really high quality vodka, I think. I mean, it was served at all the finest hotels in Japan. Now, granted, this is the early 1950s when the economy of Japan is still somewhat in tatters. So it may be that it was being served in all the finest hotels because it was that much cheaper for them to (laughs) acquire because it was local. But still, it had a reputation in Japan as being pretty good, I think, though. Eventually, there was too much competition and they phased that out pretty quickly. But that's just another crazy area. Taito was the first uh, company ever to distill vodka in Japan. The real turning point and the real thing that pushes him even further into coin-operated amusements is he decides to get into the jukebox business. I think the vending machines are doing okay for him, and so the next step, the next thing that seems like be a reasonable area to get into is jukeboxes. And it always seems that for Japan, jukeboxes seem to be the quote-unquote gateway into coin-op and video games. That's very true. There were four companies that end up importing jukeboxes into Japan, all founded by foreigners, two by Americans, two by Russians. There was Cosdell, which was an American company. They didn't do video games. They were out way before then. They got involved in the record business and got out of coin-op. There's V&V Vending, which we talked about in conjunction with Sega, because that's where Hayao Nakayama got his start in the coin-op industry, founded by two Russians, by Russian brothers. I don't know their backstory, but I imagine it's somewhat similar to Mike Kogan's. I don't know that they're Jewish, but I'm guessing they were probably Jewish and wouldn't surprise me if they entered the business through some of the same methods Kogan did. But I just I don't know their backstory because they're not relevant to the video game industry, so I haven't researched it. Service games, of course, Sega was founded by Americans uh, to bring jukeboxes first to military bases, and then they were the Rockola distributor in Japan. So very powerful jukebox company in Japan. And then the fourth one, Taito. Taito was the first of them, as far as I know. I know they were before Sega, and I know they were before Cosdell. I don't know the Valinsky's history, V&V Vending, well enough. But as far as I know, they're the first one to get in the jukebox business in Japan. They are only able to get into it in a very indirect way. At this time, the economy is still not great. So there are some pretty heavy restrictions on imports and exports. There's an organization, it still exists, I think, I mean, it may have a different name or something, but still exists, called uh, MITI, or MITI, I don't know, probably MITI, but M-I-T-I, Ministry of International Trade and Industry. And they're the government organization that regulates international imports and exports in Japan. You have to get a license from them to import anything. It's not just a broad license. The license you get entitles you to import up to X amount of dollars or X amount of yen of product. They classify items at different levels of necessity. And during this time period, they were really pushing the importation of necessities because they're still recovering. And that's what they need. Things that they classify as luxury items they are very, very, very restrictive on. So Kogan tries around 1954 to get a license to import jukeboxes following up on his importation of these vending machines. They don't let him. They won't let him do it. But you'll recall we've got this large American presence and we've got these American bases that have jukeboxes on them. Jukeboxes being brought in by companies like Sega, 
When I say Taito was the first, what I mean is the first in the domestic market. They're already on the military market. Cosdell and Sega are bringing these jukeboxes in to military bases. Over time, those models break down, get obsoleted, get thrown out so that the new models can be brought in to replace them. So Kogan goes around and he makes some deals. I don't know if he makes the deals directly with like service games or if he's making them with the base commanders. I don't know who he makes the deals with. But he basically makes deals saying, I will buy all of your used, broken down, not fully functioning jukeboxes from you and take those off your hands. So win-win, because I mean, otherwise they're just going to throw them in a dump or something. So they're getting money for something that they wouldn't otherwise be able to get money for. And since they're already there in Japan, he's able to bypass the trade organization. So what he would do is he'd buy all these broken down machines and then he'd salvage them for parts. It may take three or four machines to create one working machine. But now you have a jukebox that you can put out in the domestic market. He starts doing that in 1954. Jukeboxes take a while to get popular in Japan. They really don't get super popular until 1960. There's a couple things going on there. First, they're not very widespread because... Well, you can't import them. You're just doing this refurbishment stuff. Second of all, they're very Western-centric in their record selection. It takes a while to kind of figure out how to get the local, the Japanese music industry and recording industry involved in the supply side of the jukebox business, because it really kind of takes a mix of having some Western hits and some local music to get it to work. But over time, they start slowly rising in popularity and jukeboxes start having a presence in the quickly reviving Japanese economy. It's kind of funny. When they first start this business of the jukebox thing, of course, at this point, they're not just being an import-export company. They're also being an operator of these things. So they have to go out and deliver them to the places that need them. So they have a delivery truck. Nothing fancy, but they have a small delivery truck. And apparently, this is according to a series of tweets that Taito itself did about its corporate history a few years back, which uh, is a fascinating source of information on the early years of the company. According to this uh, series of tweets, they got a lot of job applicants, primarily because they all wanted to ride in or drive the truck. Because right after the war here, when everything is uh, still kind of destroyed, there aren't a lot of automobiles in the country. And so it's kind of like, wow. I get to get paid and drive an automobile? Win-win for me. So they do this business. Uh, In 1956, they actually explore beginning manufacturing of their own jukeboxes. They put a prototype model together, and they test it out a little bit, but they discover that it's cost prohibitive. They could build them and they could sell them, but it's much cheaper to do what they're doing because their market's still small. They wouldn't really get volume out of it. They're the first company in Japan to ever create a jukebox domestically, but they don't actually release it. Sega becomes the first company to actually create, build, manufacture, and sell a jukebox roughly a decade later, a little under a decade later. They do the refurbishment thing until 1958. And in 1958, they are finally, because the economy is that much better, They are finally able to get a license to import jukeboxes. They become the Japanese distributor for AMI, one of the big four companies. Then in 1962, they become the uh, distributor as well for Seaberg, another one of the big four companies. 
AMI, Seberg, Wurlitzer, and Rockola are the big four. Sega has Rockola. Yeah, at that point, they start placing jukeboxes all over Japan, several thousand of them. They're kind of neck and neck with Sega for dominance of that segment of the market. And this is also around the time that David Rosen is beginning to do his movie theater gun corners that we've talked about in in conjunction with Sega and starting to put games in those movie theaters and whatnot. Mike Kogan takes notice of this as well, and they start doing the same thing. So in 1960, they get into this other kind of arcade operation business. And they open a big arcade near Uryoku Station in Osaka. This was one of the very first large game centers in the country. David Rosen kind of pioneered this. Uh, He opened his first one in 1958. I mean, he was starting to import stuff even a couple years before that, but he opened his first kind of big one in 58 or so. And so this is another one of the very early large arcades. Like, they're still attached to other businesses. This one's part of this train station or whatever. But it's kind of this phase where coin-operated games are becoming popular enough in Japan that you can have bigger centers, bigger game centers for these amusements. So this brings Taito very firmly into coin-operated amusements. In 1962, they become the official distributor for Gottlieb in Japan. At this time, we may recall Gottlieb is the number one pinball company in the pre-solid state days. They're getting amusements from other places as well, but I mean, they're now the distributor for Gottlieb all around the country, and pinball is becoming more and more popular in Japan in this period, which they don't call pinball. They call them flipper games. I think we talked about this in a previous episode. They call pachinko pinball as well, kind of use those terms interchangeably. So they call them flipper games. That's just a real tangent, but that's kind of true for most of the world. I've been talking to a couple of people in Europe, and in most places in Europe, pinball is called flippers or flipper games. I think the reason for that is that, by and large, pinball became popular in the rest of the world after World War II. There were some periods where pin games were popular abroad before World War II, but they really became popular after World War II. So by the time these countries got pinball, they didn't have pins anymore. The most prominent feature was the flipper. So they don't call them pinball machines. They call them flipper machines. Makes sense. So they're importing a lot of stuff. And then they decide to take the next step. And as far as I know, they're the first Japanese company. Well, that's not true. Casco and Namco were already doing some manufacturing at this point, but it was, I mean, Namco was basically doing custom rides, and Casco had done a few custom machines for shopping malls and whatnot, but Taito essentially, for all practical purposes, even if it's not technically true, becomes the first company to decide that they are going to manufacture coin-operated amusements themselves. And so in 1963, they found a new subsidiary called Pacific Amusements. Pacific Amusements is a manufacturer. They design, build, manufacture coin-operated games that then the Taito Trading Company parent distributes, sells, whatever. They are the first company in Japan to really do that. Like I said, Casco is doing some manufacturing. Namco is kind of doing some manufacturing at the same time. Called Nakamura Manufacturing back then, of course. 
But this is really the start of manufacturing in Japan. The first big hit they have is right about this time, there's a big crane boom in Japan. Crane games. Uh, An Italian crane is imported into the country. And these crane games kind of take the Japanese coin-operated world by storm. And so Taito builds a crane machine called the Crown 602. Crown becomes their trade name. All of their early arcade product was sold under the Crown logo or the Crown imprint. So they create the Crown 602, which is Japan's first domestically produced crane game. And obviously cranes are still a huge part of Japanese arcades today. They usually call them UFO catchers these days. But that's still a huge part of the Japanese coin-op scene. And you can trace it all the way back to Taito here being the first one to domestically manufacture. So a very innovative company, uh, multiple occasions, as we've already seen, even just going up to the early 1960s. They're also the first company to build what is called a patchy slot machine. Are you familiar with what that term means? I have no clue. So you know how there are a lot of Japanese games that tend to have little slot machine mini games in them? No, but I'll take your word for it. Well, for one thing, you've played a lot of Dragon Quest games. Oh, fine. And then there was that Super Mario Bros. 2 thing where you could get extra lives in between games. Oh, right. So now we're on the same page. We are now. You know, one of the defining characteristics of those games is that you stop each reel individually, right? Yeah. Very often you are pressing the button to try and guess when something's going to go in. Mm-hmm. You get that same kind of mini game even in Super Mario Brothers 3, now that I think about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just it's not a slot machine. It's the three uh, parts of the uh, power-up mm-hmm. on sliding pictures or whatever. But yeah, exactly. It's you're the same to, idea. You're trying to get the thing to line up properly so that you get some sort of reward. And that's actually a patchy slot machine. It's a slot machine where you actually can press a button to stop each reel individually. The reason that these come about is that gambling is ostensibly illegal in Japan. You know, the pachinko industry gets around it in various ways. I mean, obviously, gambling goes on. There's a lot of gray market or black market stuff happening, but it's ostensibly illegal. So straight out slot machines are a no-no. That's why we get, for instance, the metal game fad that we've talked about in our Japanese arcade episodes. Slot machines where you're putting tokens in and no money changes hands, at least not above the table. But this is a similar idea. The 1964 Olympics are in Tokyo, and Taito wants to do a special kind of commemorative coin-operated machine of some kind for the Tokyo Olympics because it's a great publicity opportunity. They come up with the idea of doing a slot machine, and I don't know all the behind the scenes there, but they decide to do a slot machine, but they can't do a one-armed bandit. They can't do a pole lever, real spin, random chance, whatever. Because that's illegal. So they get special permission from the government to make a slot machine where you can press a button on each reel to stop that reel moving. The idea being that you are theoretically having some control over the outcome. And if you're having some control over the outcome, it's no longer gambling somehow. It's skill-based because if I know that if I press that button right then and there, that fire flower will become together there. And I get three lives over there. Right. 
Now, they're not the inventor of this style of slot machines. These kinds of slot machines have existed before, but they were the first company in Japan to create one. They released it as the Olympia for the Olympics in 1964. It actually doesn't catch on right away. Apache Slot doesn't actually get popular in Japan until the next decade. There's a German game called Rodiment that comes out, which is essentially a push-button, stop-the-reel kind of game, and that's what causes the huge craze in Japan. So they, they don't start a trend with their Olympia model, but it's interesting that they are the first Japanese company to create a Apache Slot machine, and this is another category of game, of gambling game like Pachinko, that becomes extremely popular in Japan. You know, they're looking for angles, and they're doing their own manufacturing now. The business is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Throughout the 1960s, the economic expansion in Japan, it proceeds at an accelerated pace, and as you get more and more entertainment venues and more and more retail venues opening, more and more department stores, more and more shopping centers, more and more bowling alleys, more and more hotels, games are following along, coin-operated amusements are following along behind these new retail establishments and coming into vogue. So Taito is doing rather well for itself uh, throughout the 1960s and early 1970s. They are one of the big four in this time period. When we talk about the video era, we talk about the big three, which were Sega, Taito, Namco. Throughout the 80s and 90s and beyond, those were the three companies that thoroughly dominated the Japanese arcade scene. In this period, it was the big four. Because there was also a company called Casco, which never really transitioned into video games and so kind of fell by the wayside. So Taito was one of the big four in the industry during this period, and they're number two to Sega. Sega was always the largest, but Taito's right behind them, ahead of Namco, and then Casco is, is bringing up the rear. So they're doing quite well for themselves. In 1972, they even changed their name to Taito Corporation. Because even though they have this trading company element, like I said, it, it does not go away as long as Kogan is at the head of the company. There's a recognition that at this point, they really aren't primarily a trading company anymore. And so they want to kind of shed that image. So in 1972, they changed the name to Taito Corporation. They get trading company out of there. They've been expanding. You know, they've got their manufacturing subsidiary. In 1971, they buy another company called Japan Vending that is heavily involved in operation. They operate a lot of kiddie stuff. They operate on department store rooftops more, which is an area that Taito hadn't really been in. So they buy Japan Vending to further expand their operating capability. They're bringing in Seaberg jukeboxes. They're bringing in Gottlieb pinballs. They're manufacturing domestic cranes. They're going crazy. And it's in this climate that, of course, the video game first arrives in the early 1970s. Pong is known in Japan fairly quickly after it debuts in the United States because these Japanese companies are always looking at what's going on in the American market. And they're all in the American market. Taito, at this point, is exporting under their crown imprint. And they actually have a game in 1967 that's fairly popular, a basketball game called Crown Basketball. It's one where the ball kind of rolls around on this play field that's not fully level, and then the ball ends up in a hole, and then you can press a, a lever or whatever to try to shoot the ball into the basket. I actually have a, a home version of that that was either my mom or my aunt's game, one of the two, back in the 1960s. 
So it's like a little ping pong ball that rolls around, ends up in a hole that represents a shooting position, and then you try to use a spring action thing to try to shoot that ping pong ball into a basket. I don't know if you've ever played a a basketball game like that. I don't think so. Does your aunt still have it? No, I I have it. That's that's the point I'm making. It was was either my mom's or my aunt's when they were a child. Okay. But then we had it in my house, and my mom and I would play against each other when I was much, much younger. We'll have to take some pictures of that. (laughs) If I could find where it is. But I'm pretty sure Crown Basketball, or at least a similar game, should be discoverable on YouTube. Pretty sure. So they're keeping track of what's going on in the American market because at this point they are exporting some of their product to America under the uh, the crown imprint. They don't have their own U.S. subsidiary yet. They're working with American distributors, but their product is getting into the country. So they're aware of Pong pretty soon after it starts taking the arcades by storm in early 1973. So they do the natural thing. They import a unit. They buy a unit and have it shipped over to Japan to see what all the fuss is about. And they are not impressed, Jeff. They are not impressed. We are not entertained. Because it's so simple. You remember at this time, and and we've talked about these games, you have all of these elaborate electromechanical driving and shooting games with very advanced, quote-unquote, graphics. They're not computer graphics, but graphics and sound effects and control schemes your periscopes, your missiles, your speedways, and of course, Taito's manufacturing those kind of big games as well. And so here's a game where your control is just a dial. The thing you're controlling is just a rectangle, and there's this little blip passing between them, going boom, 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 and they're not impressed. They don't see it. They don't understand. Sega also imports a Pong machine at about the same time, almost the same time. Taito doesn't even bother to put theirs out on test. I mean, they just look at it in their own offices and are like, nah. Sega puts theirs out on test, and it does phenomenally well. Of course, they're wrong. I mean, the Japanese and American sensibilities can be different in a lot of different ways, but when you're talking about games that simple, you know, where there's really no cultural barrier or language barrier to overcome, when it comes to just pure, simple fun like that, there really isn't much difference between a Japanese person and an American person. The game's hugely popular in the U.S. Of course it's also insanely popular in Japan when Sega decides to give it a chance, you know? Taito sees this, and they're like, oh, well, wait a minute, their game's doing well? So then they put their game out on test, you know, the one that they bought. And I presume that one did fairly well, too. Exactly. So then they're like, oh, well... I guess we're going to have to do this video game thing now. To the video game store. What they decide to do is they start importing the boards from the United States. They buy game boards and then they build the games in Japan. It's a slightly different track than Sega takes. Sega actually starts building their own games right away. They kind of do a clone of Pong with some of their young engineers. Whereas Taito takes the import approach. So they'll import the boards, put them in a cabinet that they make themselves, and then put it out on the market. So they released their Pong clone as Elepong. I don't know why it's Elepong. Probably English or whatever. Electric Pong. You know, it might be. I don't know. (laughs) I never thought of that. Be electronic, not electric, but still. It could be Electric Pong or Electron Pong. Yeah, Elepong could be short for Electronic Ping Pong. Mm -hmm. Really could be. There you go, Jeff. 
This is why we have these conversations together. That's right. <laughs> and this is why we record it for you, the listener. That's right. So uh, they put that game out in July 1973 at pretty much the same time Sega puts their game out. I couldn't tell you day and date which one hit the market first because they are both usually represented as having come out in July. So pinpointing it to the day, <laughs> not so easy. But Sega and Taito were right there together as the first two companies to create a video game and release a video game in Japan. Interestingly, they also import Space Race, Atari's second game that did not do very well. And they package it again in their own cabinet and everything, and they call their version Astro Race, but it's Space Race. So they have these first couple of games, but they're imports. They're not making them themselves. Late in the year, they bring out their very first original game. That game comes from a fellow by the name of Tomohiro Nishikado. Nishikado was a relatively young guy who had joined the company in 1968 or so. When he first got out of college, he went to work for an audio company called Takuto, and then he ended up leaving that job. And a friend of his that had also used to work at this audio company that had left before him, he was meeting him regularly just to socialize. And this guy had gotten a job at Taito and was like, this place is doing kind of cool stuff. You should really come see what they're doing. Nishikado's an engineer, and he's been interested in engineering since he was a kid. He was making money in high school by building his own custom amplifiers and speakers and whatnot. So he's an electrical engineering guy going way back. And he's actually already committed verbally to joining another company. But he goes and checks out Taito and thinks that this kind of stuff looks so cool that he ends up, well, I'll, I'll go here. I'll, I will do this. So he joins Taito in their Pacific Amusements subsidiary, because that at this point in time is the manufacturing subsidiary. He's not put in game design right away. They put him in production first, probably just because you want to kind of get an idea of how games or how something works. Be asked to assemble it, put it together. <laughs> it gives you a pretty good idea of how all this stuff interacts. Then after a few months of that, he's uh, put into game development, and he creates a popular electromechanical game called Sky Fighter. It's really quite elaborately done, as many games in this period were, because actually what he did is he actually had model planes in there, and then he had mirrors to project those planes in front of the player, so you don't see the actual planes flying in front of you you see it's the reflection of them and then there's a blue sky uh he's got a rotating like film drum in there that's just a blue background and so because it's rotating it gives the sense that you're moving through the air and these planes are moving through the air and you're trying to shoot them down it's one of these elaborate electromechanical games that was coming out in this period and it's a fairly big hit the first version has a huge cabinet so they do a sky fighter 2 it's actually the same game but he figured out a way to do the same kind of idea in a smaller cabinet, which made it more palatable in more locations. After that, he is actually reassigned, even though that game was a hit, he's actually reassigned out of product development into like the parts division, like procurement, going out and sourcing all of the components they need to build their games. That kind of seems really not related to what he was doing. He did yeah. really well doing this manufacturing, coming up with a good game, 
even getting it down to a smaller form factor. Mm -hmm. And they go, good work there. Now go buy stuff for us. It's almost like his competency isn't being properly utilized. I would tend to agree with that. And I think Nishikado would tend to agree with that. He almost quits the company. He almost decides to leave. But in the end, I mean, that's not, especially at that time, but even still today, I mean, you don't often quit your company. That's a big step in Japan. So he ultimately decides to stay, but he's not happy. He's definitely not happy. One of his old bosses in the product development division kind of senses that he's unhappy in his job. And he tells him, here's what I want you to do in your free time. Start looking at these things called integrated circuits. Start looking at how to build product using these integrated circuit things, because I believe this is going to be the next step. Solid state is going to be the next step in the design of these games. And we're going to need to be ready to jump into that market when the time comes. So he does. He starts learning about TTL hardware and integrated circuits kind of in his spare time. Now, flash forward, you know, six months, a year, probably about a year, I'm not exactly sure, and Taito is now in the video game business, which is an integrated circuit business. It's a TTL hardware business. We've talked before about how the Japanese companies had a fair amount of difficulty adapting to the new reality of the video game because their entire business was built on electromechanical and since Japan just generally in this period which we've said before tends to be a couple of years behind in their technological sophistication once they learn something they catch up quick but it's usually in this time period being done in the US first and then they're picking it up obviously that changes over time i'm just talking about this period in the in the early 1970s here so all of their people were electromechanical engineers and they couldn't just necessarily go out and hire a bunch of people that knew solid state because there were relatively few people in Japan that understood that stuff. And they're probably going to end up going to a larger, more prestigious electronics company rather than going to a mere manufacturer of games. It takes a while for the Japanese to get the expertise in making video games for the arcade. But Taito, Taito has a guy because this one manager of his had the foresight to say to him, why don't you get good at this stuff? Because we're going to need you. And sure enough, they needed him. They needed him. So he gets to go back to product development. He gets to go back to the area that he really cares about. And he gets the mandate, go make video games. So he starts by dissecting a Pong board, like really dissecting it. I don't know if he's literally peeling back layers, but he's at least seeing where all the tracings go and seeing what all the individual ICs and diodes and transistors do and figuring out exactly how this Pong board works. He starts by just making a modification to it. You know, start small when you're getting to learn something. So he just creates a modification with a couple more paddles on it and some uh, sidewall and calls it soccer. He releases that, or Taito rather, releases that late in 1973. That is most likely the first completely original video game created in Japan. Of course, Taito is importing everything, so they're not making anything at all. Sega, I believe, is making their own stuff. I think their Pongtron game, there, there's an oral history interview with Hideki Sato. 
I mean, I'm just trying to understand as much of it as I can using Google Translate nonsense. So, you know, it's not precise, but the gist that I got from the portion of his interview covering the early 1970s is that Sega created their own board for Pongtron. They didn't just import American boards and put it in a cabinet. So in that sense, they would have been making games. But at that point, you're just I mean, you're just talking about doing a part for part remake. I mean, there's no original engineering going into that. You just see where all the traces go. You get all the part numbers for all the ICs and plug them into the board that you've replicated and you have a product. So they're doing engineering, but it's not original engineering. It's cloning. This soccer game by Nishikado is probably the first Japanese-made, Japanese-created video game. So Taito's right here on the cutting edge, and Nishikado is right here on the cutting edge. They released that in late 1973. He also does a four-player variant, Davis Cup. So then our friend uh, Nishikado remains, for the next several years, the sole game designer, video game designer, I should say, at Taito. During this period, they also make their first foray into the United States. In 1973, Taito establishes Taito America in the Chicago area. I think they start in downtown Chicago, but kind of move to the suburbs pretty soon after. To run that company, he taps an employee named Ed Miller, who's already at the company. Ed is a a salesman through and through. I've actually interviewed him. He's one of these natural salesman types. He's kind of a hustler type. Not a hustler type in a bad way, but I mean, he gets out and hustles and finds opportunities is, is what I mean by hustler. I don't mean these cheating people. He's one of these guys that gets out there, finds opportunities, and he was doing this kind of travel booking, flight booking kind of business. When he was doing this business, he met and became friends with Abba Kogan, which is Mike Kogan's son. Abba's short for uh, Abraham, I believe. Mike Kogan's son, Abba, and he become close. They become friends. So a couple of years later, Abba helps him get a job at Taito in Japan. He actually joins the company in 1971 in Japan as a buyer because there's an advantage for a company like that that's doing import and export, having some people that are from some of the markets they do business in. Even though at that time they don't have an American subsidiary, they hire Ed Miller to be an American in their corporate office in Japan. So in 1973, when it comes time to establish an American office, Mike Kogan puts Ed Miller in charge of this company. Ed Miller, he was in the Army briefly, and he had an old Army buddy named Paul Moriarty. So Ed calls up Paul and was like, hey, I'm starting this new business. You doing anything interesting? No, not really. Well, come here and work with me, and uh, we'll create this Taito America business together. I've also interviewed Paul. He's unfortunately passed away. cancer. He actually died, I think, less than six months after I interviewed him. I didn't even know he was ill at the time, but I did talk to him shortly before he passed away. But uh, these two guys, Ed's the president, Paul's the general manager, and they set up this uh, Tidal America subsidiary. The company is still a trading company at this time. One of the things that they're doing is they're actually selling knickknacks. Knickknacks like ivory carvings and whatnot that Taito has acquired in Japan And one of the things they're supposed to do is take those around the United States and get companies in the United States to to buy these knickknacks. It's not just a a coin-op company. But then the other side of the business is they're supposed to serve as the clearinghouse for Taito products. So the stuff that Taito is acquiring in the United States to place in its game centers in Japan, you know, they're going to be responsible for sourcing that. 
And they also have a mandate to try to find places or companies that they can work with to bring Taito's product, Taito's video game product, into the United States. They very quickly, according to Paul, they very quickly become just a coin-op subsidiary. I mean, the knick-knack business or whatever never really goes anywhere. And obviously, the the coin-op stuff just keeps growing and growing. So that goes by the wayside very quickly. But it is interesting that even at this late a date in 1973, there's still this thought of, well, we're not just a coin-op company. We are a trading company. We are doing import and export of lots of different things. It's very much akin to how in a lot of industries back then, there was that diversification that was going on, and it just so happened that the electronics and video game thing became so powerful and so good that it supplanted everything else from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. We saw this in Japan. We just saw this with Fairchild where Fairchild is doing these other industries and then the Fairchild semiconductor is so powerful Mm. that it is the one propping up all the other industries and they go, we're not doing anything more over here. We're going to go over and just do that. We saw this in Japan with Namco, I think. Mm -hmm. And to a lesser extent, Sega. Oh, sure. It's really just kind of interesting how a lot of these companies just sort of fall into it and it becomes the dominant thing. Konami, that's another one that I'm thinking of. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Konami Konami is a major one that does this where they do that sort of diversification and the whole video game thing they fell into and then it just dominates everything. Absolutely. So, yeah, so they've got Taito America now. You know, this is the period, and we've talked about this in the Japanese context before, this is the period when video games are in Japan, but they are not yet dominant in Japan. We talked about the Metal Game fad several times. Taito gets in big on that. I mean, they're making video games, but they're a diversified coin-op company. They're also in this Metal Game business. Uh, You know, Ed Miller described to me how they were just, Taito America just starts buying up every slot machine they can get their hands on in the United States to ship back to Japan, be converted to token-fed machines instead of coin-fed machines, and then get those out into uh, Taito's game centers, because those things are hot, hot, hot in the mid-1970s. But they're also going along with the video game stuff, too. Thanks to Taito America being there, they are able to start making deals with companies like Exidy and Gremlin, smaller U.S. companies that don't really have the wherewithal to do their own international expansion. And they start bringing in some of their product to uh, place in Japanese game centers. So they've got that import-export thing going on. They're continuing to make their own product as well. As I said, the guy doing this is Nishikado. After doing these early Pong games, Davis Cup Soccer, these variants on Pong, he decides, you know, it would be kind of cool if I could do a game where there weren't just rectangles on the screen. What if I could do something with, like, human-looking figures? Wouldn't that be fun? So he creates a basketball game. Obviously, Taito has had a very successful basketball game, uh, Crown Basketball, This basketball game is nothing like that basketball game, but I would have to think that Nishikado is partially guided in that direction by this because, as we'll see, several of his next products are driven by, let's take something that was successful in the electromechanical realm and translate it to video games. 
he does a, a basketball game and it's still a ball and paddle game because it's a parabolic arc kind of ball and paddle games. I don't think you'll find video of this online, but I could be wrong. Each player has two guys that move up and down, just up and down. I think this can be a two or a four player game because I think they all have their own dial. So you can play a two player and just, you know, control one character with your left hand, one with your right hand, or you can do it four player. Each one controls one. And these guys move up and down and they're little stick figure kind of guys. So he's got graphical representation, but these stick figures, basically they have their arms up and they're holding a paddle (laughs) above their head. And it's actually the paddle that it bounces off of. And so then you're trying to position your players and bounce the ball off the paddle in a parabolic arc in such a way that it goes into the basket on the other side, while obviously trying to block shots on your own basket. Really, this should have just been a modification of volleyball as opposed to basketball. Sure, exactly. And there are there were volleyball variants of Pong being made at the same time, too. That's kind of the more logical one. And that's why I'm saying I do wonder if he was guided towards a basketball theme just by the fact that Taito already had a very well-known and very successful basketball game from the electromechanical era. So then it's like, oh, Taito has a new basketball game? I loved that other basketball game they did. This ought to be good. And I don't know if that's the reason, but I mean, it would make sense. Now, was this game released under the Crown label or is this under the Taito label? Okay, yeah, the Crown, that's a good question. The Crown label is not used for the video games. That was merely for the electromechanical games. Their early video games, they release under a label called Titronics. Again, an amalgamation of Taito Electronics. It's not a new company or anything, but that's the logo they use. So these early games are Titronic games. Basketball comes out in early 1974, and, you know, at this time, as we said, there is an American subsidiary. So for the first time, a Japanese company, not just a first for Taito, a first for any Japanese company, this game is brought to the United States. But Taito doesn't have a factory in the United States. They have a sales office. So they need a partner. Part of the reason that they located in the Chicago area is the vast majority of the American coin-operated games industry is in Chicago. So Ed Miller goes and shops the game around and licenses it to Midway, Midway Manufacturing, which, as we'll recall, is the video game and electromechanical novelty game subsidiary of Bally. used to be an independent company, was purchased in 1969. And this is the company through which they've been releasing their video games. And Bally is really the only one of the big Chicago manufacturers that really takes the video game industry seriously in the early days. So Midway's on the lookout for a video game product. They want to put that product out. This basketball game something new and different. So they license it and release it in the U.S. as TV basketball under the Midway name. I mean, the Taito name appears nowhere on it. With all the early games that the uh, U.S. was licensing from Japan, you know, they just slapped their own name on it. They didn't put it out under the name of the Japanese factory. So Midway releases TV Basketball, which is the first imported Japanese game into the U.S. And uh, it makes sense that Taito would have the first there because, again, Taito is the company that more than any other in this early period is pushing into original product. And it's because they have their man Nishikado, who kind of has an idea of what he's doing. Around the time that he's working on TV basketball, or just after he's finished TV basketball, the first driving video game comes out, Grand Track 10, Atari game. We talked about it, of course, in our in-depth look at Atari. 
Nishikados kind of like, okay, that's kind of interesting. Driving games are kind of cool, but I don't like this. Grand Track 10, it's a single screen game. We've talked about it. And of course, we did a, a driving game episode where some of what I'm about to say is going to be duplicative. But this is so important to Taito that it's worth discussing again in the context of Taito. Grand Track is single screen overhead, lots of twists and turns, twisty curvy, because the only way to keep all your driving action on a single screen is to have it wrap back around itself a lot of times. He's like, yeah, this is kind of hard to control. This is kind of finicky. I like the idea of a driving game, but I don't think this driving game is fun. I'm going to make my own driving game with blackjack and hookers. Not the hookers. Ah, let's just forget the whole thing. But he doesn't forget the whole thing. No, he creates a driving game that, as we talked about before in our driving game episode, is based on existing Japanese driving games that are based on the concept of driving down a straight road instead. Casco, the company that we mentioned uh, previously very briefly that was one of the big four in the electromechanical era, they had a big breakthrough in the Japanese market in 1958 with a game called Mini Drive. This is one of those, uh, just like Drivemobile, I mean, we talked about some of these early games. I can't remember if we talked about Mini Drive, but I know we talked about Drivemobile in our driving game episode. It's one of these, you've got a car on a road that is represented by like a rotating drum or by a conveyor or something else where it twists and turns a little bit and your car's hovering over top of that and you turn your steering wheel to keep your car on the road. Mini Drive's one of these kind of games. What set it apart from Drivemobile is that Drivemobile was on a relatively short rotating drum, whereas Mini Drive was in a longer cabinet, so you had more road stretching in front of you as you did this driving. But it was basically the same principle as Drivemobile. And that was a very popular game and spawned a lot of imitators. And that's a game that Nishikado remembered from his own youth. That was one that he really liked in his own youth. He liked this idea of driving along a straight road and having to stay on the road and all of that. Then uh, we talked, I know we talked in our driving game episode, how Taito had a product much more recently, like in 1970 or so, called Super Road 7, which was the mini drive model. It was that kind of game, but it had the extra wrinkle that there were other cars on the road that you had to avoid. As you're driving along, there are other cars appearing and you have to shift lanes with your steering wheel and everything to, to avoid hitting the cars. Nishikado's basically like, this is great that Atari has done a driving game. I love that. Now let's make a fun driving game, you know, from his perspective. So he kind of takes Mini Drive and Super Road 7 and mushes together some of the concepts from those two games, and he creates Speed Race. We talked about Speed Race in our driving game episode, so I won't go back into the gameplay and everything again. One thing I'm almost positive that we did not talk about in that driving game episode, because this is something that I learned later, is that because this game felt so much more advanced than the Pong games, Taito decided that they could get more money for it. So instead of setting it to 50 yen play, which was the standard cost per play in this time period, the early 1970s, they decided we're going to set it to 100 yen per play. That sounds suspiciously like the first time that you had in an arcade where the standard games are at 50 cents and then they decide that that special Star Wars one over there or that special time travel 3D thing over there 
has to be a dollar a play. Sure, but really, it's more analogous than, I mean, that's true, but it's more analogous to when all of the machines in the U.S. arcade were a dime, and then Periscope and the computer quiz games and Speedway all come along, and they're like, we can now start charging a quarter. And the reason I say that that's more analogous is because 100 yen, it may still be the standard, 100 yen becomes the standard play price and remains the standard play price for decades. The 100 yen in the arcade is just as iconic as the quarter in the arcade is in the United States. Even though in practically almost any arcade you go into now, at least in the United States, they don't cost a quarter. No, no, they cost more now. But I mean, quarter play persisted for a long time in the United States and became indelibly tied up in the mythology of the video game arcade. And it's the same with the 100 yen coin in Japan. And the 100 yen price persists in Japan a lot longer than the pure 25 cent cost does in the U.S. That is the iconic price point in Japan. A game, if it's going to take in a lot of coins, you know, it's considered to have to be a 100 yen game. And Speed Race is most likely the first. I mean, with the language barrier, don't have enough insight into Japan to say 100% definitively that it was the first. But even if it wasn't the very first, even if some obscure little thing did it first, it's the game that mainstreamed 100 yen play. After that game was on 100 yen, there was no going back. And it was extremely popular. Extremely popular game. They release a deluxe version after it. They release a two-player version after it. I mean, they keep making sequels for a couple of years after because it's just, it's huge. Once again, they license it to Midway. Midway releases it as Wheels. Midway sells thousands upon thousands of them. It's a major hit in the United States, too. TV basketball is the first game to come over from the United States to Japan, but Speed Race slash Wheels is the first one to be a massive hit in the United States that came from Japan. So that is kind of the big, big first video game from Taito. So what do you do to follow that up if you're uh, our good friend Nishikado? Well, we've got this game with cars, but, you know, that people thing I've been thinking about. You know, I kind of did people in the basketball game, but only kind of. It would be fun to, like, really do people. So once again, he takes inspiration from the electromechanical side of things. Sega had a game several years ago, like 1969 or so, I think, called Gunfight. You had a long cabinet. I know, because I've looked, because I was curious, I know there's some videos of Gunfight out there. You have to specify Sega, because there's a video game by that name too. But if you put Sega Gunfight in, you'll find something out there. kind of had a long cabinet, plastic enclosed. Each character had this uh, cowboy. And there were all sorts of obstacles in between them, like sandbags, cactus. I think there's a house on there at one point. But that's why it's a long play field, so they can put all these obstacles around. And basically, you can move your cowboy side to side, and you can press a button or whatever for your cowboy to shoot. If you successfully shoot the other guy's cowboy, he collapses. Got this whole rig to collapse thing. And, you know, like so many of these other games, it's a wiper contact game. So this lever or joystick or whatever that you're moving side to side, there's a wiper connected to that. Then if your wipers both make contact, when you press the button, complete circuit, and that's how it registers hits. That all goes on under the table. But on top of the table, it looks like you're maneuvering back and forth, taking advantage of cover and all of this as you're trying to shoot the other guy in this one-on-one cowboy duel. 
Nishikado decides to adapt that. This is not speculation. There's a book actually in French. It's hopefully going to be translated into English. But the good news is when a book's in French, Google Translate is a lot more forgiving than when a book is in Japanese. So Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, uh, got a hold of this book and has run Google Translate or whatever on it. But since it's in French, it's a lot more coherent than some of the books that Ethan and myself have been doing this to in Japanese. That book, uh, it's a biography of Nishikado. And I mean, it's not an autobiography because somebody else wrote it. It's essentially all his words from interviews that the author did with him. It's as, uh, as autobiographical as it can be without him actually being the one sitting at the typewriter. And he says in there that it was inspired by gunfights. Sometimes when I say, oh, it must have been inspired by this game, look how similar they are, it's speculation. But other times, like this one, I mean, I know. He looks at this gunfight game, it's like, that's cool. And so he creates a game called Western Gun that is uh, similar in concept. Each player is controlling a cowboy, and they have freedom of movement around the screen, and there are rocks and there are cacti around, dotted around the screen. These serve as the cover. If you shoot a cacti, it's destroyed. Uh, if you shoot a rock, your bullet will actually bounce off the rock. So that's the difference between the two kinds of cover. And you're basically moving around the screen. You have a joystick and a lever. You use your joystick to move your cowboy around. You move the lever up and down to change the uh, angle of your gun arm. So you can shoot diagonally up, center, diagonally down. Basically, you're just running around trying to shoot the other guy. person that shoots the other guy the most within the time limit wins. So that's Western Gun. That one is also licensed to Midway. But Midway is less impressed with it. They don't like the graphics. It does have these human figures, but they're very limited animation and they're very squashed, very cartoony. So very famously, Midway gives that game to Dave Nutting Associates and says, here, this game concept's really kind of cool, but we don't like the graphics. Go fix it. Change it. So they create the game Gunfight. Again, back to the name of the Sega game. Gunfight is based on Western Gun, but it plays very, very differently. Doesn't play the same at all. Gunfight is a big hit in the United States, and it's the first arcade game in the U.S. with a microprocessor because they use a microprocessor in that game. You know, it sells over 8,000 units. It's big in Japan, too, but it's really big in the United States. So this kind of Taito Midway thing is continuing to flourish. Meanwhile, back in Japan, you have a real shift going on in bars. Taito, uh, we may recall, is also in the jukebox business. They are big in jukeboxes. Well, in the 70s, a Japanese piano player invents this new thing called a karaoke machine. And the karaoke machine starts displacing the jukebox in bars and lounges and similar establishments. Also, just even just piped music is becoming more and more prevalent. You know, Muzak and everything is becoming more prevalent. The jukebox business is in collapse in the United States, and it's also beginning to collapse in Japan. But it's not just the Muzak stuff. There's also the added pressure of the karaoke machines coming in as well. And this is something we talked about. This is something we talked about in regards to our Japanese Game Center's episode, so it's a little bit of repeat. But Taito is heavily invested in this bar trade, and so they need to come up with a way to keep a presence in these bar and lounge markets to make up for the revenue that they're losing by no longer having the jukeboxes. So they decide, let's make a video game cabinet that is suitable for a bar location. And we talked about this in regards to the Pong boom in the U.S., how there was an attempt to extend into the lounge market by doing 
what's called a cocktail-style cabinet, where it's more of a table so that it fits in in a lounge. That was happening in the U.S. in the 73-74 time period. So now here in 1977, Taito decides to try something very similar in Japan to make up for their flagging jukebox sales. They also invest in karaoke, by the way. I mean, Taito becomes a pretty major manufacturer of karaoke machines as the 70s and 80s progress as well. But they also get involved in this video game thing. They make their tabletop cabinet, or TT cabinet for short. To inaugurate this new type of cabinet, they decide to create a clone of the hot new game in the Japanese uh, game center scene, Breakout. So they call this TT Block. Their clone is called Block, and then it's TT for tabletop. TT Block really takes the Japanese market by storm, and it's really the first video game craze. And we talked about this in the context of Breakout, because we talked about Breakout before. Breakout was kind of the first big video game in Japan that spawned a lot of clones, a lot of interest. And a big part of that fad was the creation of the tabletop style game by Taito, because once you had the tabletop, you could get into bars, lounges, snack bars, coffee and tea houses these establishments that did not allow video games. You know, there weren't really street locations so much in Japan in the same way there was in the United States. A street location being a business like a bar or a tavern that only has two or three machines instead of 10 or more machines. You know, you have games in hotels, supermarkets, bowling alleys, etc., But unlike in the U.S. where you have the bar and tavern trade, you don't really have that in Japan. Well, now with these tabletop games, they're finally getting into those venues. And Breakout has captivated the Japanese public enough that there's a lot of demand for these. So that really helps expand the Japanese arcade business. It really helps expand Taito's arcade business specifically. And so that does really, really well for them. Meanwhile, our good friend Nishikado, he creates another game uh, called Interceptor in 75 or 76. It's not a successful game, but it's interesting because it may be the first game that had scaling sprites. We talked about scaling sprites before. It's where an object gets smaller or larger on the screen, and the way it does that is that it replaces a smaller smart sprite with a bigger version of the same sprite, with a bigger version, with a bigger version, with a bigger version, and then the opposite when it's getting further away. So Interceptor is kind of interesting because it may have been the first game with scaling sprites, but it's not all that successful. Meanwhile, Gunfight is doing very well in the United States. Nishikado is not impressed with the gameplay. It's a slower-paced game than Western Gun is, because part of the trade-off for having bigger, less squashed, more realistically proportioned cowboys that have some animation to them that's more realistic is that they can't really zip around the screen as fast because too much processing power. So he's not very impressed with Gunfight as a game. But that microprocessor system, that gets Nishikado's attention. And he's like, all right, the next thing I do, the next thing I make, is going to have to have a microprocessor-based board very similar to this gunfight game. So he starts to work on an 8080-based, Intel 8080-based video game hardware. There's some dispute or disagreement over whether he copied the Nutting Associates board He might have actually just ripped off their board wholesale. He might not have. He might have just used it as inspiration and crafted his own board. The sources are kind of unclear on this point. But he starts creating his own board. 
The other thing that's going on, of course, is that Breakout has taken over the arcades by storm in Japan. So he's like, I want to create a game that creates that same sense of satisfaction that Breakout gives you of clearing the screen of objects. But I want to refine that with less abstract graphics using this new microprocessor hardware that will allow me to have pretty decent graphics. So he comes up with a target shooting game where instead of a paddle at the bottom of the screen, you have a gun battery. And instead of blocks at the top of the screen, you have targets. He tries to animate tanks and airplanes, military targets. It's not working very well. I mean, his board is still a fairly primitive board. He just couldn't get very good-looking animations on those tanks and whatnot. So then he moves to people, and management is like, no, you can't mow down rows of people. At the time, Star Wars has just come out in Japan, and has become really, really popular, as it did all over the world. So Nishikado's like, well, if I can't do people, and if military stuff's not working, what about something with an outer space motif? He's a big fan of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds which in its original form has these very sea monsterish described kind of enemies, tentacles and all of that. So he starts drawing these different aliens kind of inspired by War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells, and comes up with the game that, of course, becomes Space Invaders. And it's with Space Invaders and the ridiculously huge impact it had on both the arcade industry as a whole and Taito specifically that we will pick up this story in part two of our history of Taito. So I guess we will have the invaders invade us properly this time, next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is at TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.